Last week, as we turned to the book of Jeremiah, we were given insight into how to tell a true prophet from a false one. In chapter 23 of this book, we noticed Jeremiah was not the only person in Judah who was claiming to be a prophet of the Lord. There were plenty of others, but we also saw that they had a different message from Jeremiah. Their message was a message only of peace. While Jeremiah was telling Judah that judgment was coming because of their sin, the other prophets were telling Judah, all will be well. While Jeremiah announced that God was giving Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the other prophets were saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon. And last week, we saw how the people of Judah could have figured out who was telling the truth. They could have asked, which of these prophets has a message that agrees with what God has already said? The only one with a message like that was Jeremiah. But in passing last time, we also noticed another test. The genuine prophet, the true prophet, is the one whose prophecy comes true. And when that test was applied, again, Jeremiah won hands down. Because history shows the Babylonians did come, led by Nebuchadnezzar, and three times they overcame Judah. First, during the reign of Jehoiakim in 605 BC. The book of Daniel tells us that was when Daniel himself was taken captive to Babylon, along with some of the articles from the temple of God and some of the Israelites. Then the Babylonians came a second time in 597 BC during the reign of Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin. And that time they took considerably more than they had the first time. Second Kings chapter 24 tells us they cleaned out most of the remaining treasures from the temple. They also looted the palace and they took 10,000 of the people into exile. That second attack by the Babylonians left Judah and Jerusalem in a pretty pitiful state. But the Babylonians came back a third time. In 587 BC, they came to finish the job, and that was during the reign of Jehoiachin's successor, Zedekiah. We've heard about him already in the book of Jeremiah, and later on in the book, we'll get details of that third and final Babylonian attack. But the only thing we need to grasp at this point is that Jeremiah's words came true. He announced that the Babylonians would overcome Judah, and they did. With three progressively harder blows, they utterly devastated the people and the place. And so we might wonder what all the other prophets did at that point. Did they admit they were wrong? Did they agree that Jeremiah was the true prophet of the Lord after all? No, they just changed their message. That's what Jeremiah chapters 24 to 28 are about. Early on in this series of attacks by Babylon, Jeremiah prophesied that in all, the period of exile would last for 70 years. And the other prophets replied, nah, it'll be all over within two years. 
Within two years, all the treasures will be brought back to Jerusalem and the exiles will be brought back along with them. So chapters 24 to 28 continue to focus on Jeremiah versus the false prophets. And needless to say, the false prophets were wrong again. History proved Jeremiah to be right. But this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 29. This chapter is set shortly after the second attack by the Babylonians, when 10,000 people had been taken from Jerusalem over to Babylon. So this is right at the time when Jeremiah has been saying, this is going to take 70 years. And the other prophets have been saying, less than two years. In the midst of those conflicting prophecies, Jeremiah writes a letter to the Judean exiles in Babylon. And he tells them how to live in exile. So if you haven't found chapter 29, it's on page 789 in the church Bibles or in the large print 1223. And we'll read verses 1 to 23. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the craftsmen had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. 
and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. A curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it, and I am witness to it, declares the Lord. This is God's word. And verse 1 tells us this is a letter. Jeremiah is still in the partially devastated city of Jerusalem. He's there after the second Babylonian attack, and he's sending God's word in written form to the exiles in Babylon. Verse 3 says the letter was carried to Babylon by two men called Elasa and Gemariah. Now, they weren't going all that way just to deliver Jeremiah's letter. They had been sent by King Zedekiah, possibly to take the regular payment of money that Nebuchadnezzar demanded from Judah. That might have been the reason they went. Or maybe it was to carry some other kind of diplomatic letters to the Babylonian government. Whatever it was, verse 3 says Zedekiah the king had sent these men. But even though they work for the king of Judah, Elasa and Gemariah must have been supporters of Jeremiah to some degree because they have agreed to deliver his letter as well. When the letter arrived in Babylon and was circulated among the exiles, it must have been very, very shocking. Remember, the other prophets back in Jerusalem have been saying this exile won't even last as long as two years. And from what he says in this letter, Jeremiah is aware there are prophets among the exiles who are spreading the same message. So these very influential people who claim to speak for God are saying, folks, keep your bags packed. Just wait for the announcement that's going to come through. Before you know it, you'll be leaving this horrible place and you'll all be heading back home. 
Nebuchadnezzar has put you here, but just sit and wait. God will get you out of here. And he will put you back where you really belong. That's what the other prophets were saying. But in contrast to that message, God speaks through Jeremiah in verse 4, and he says, no, I put you in Babylon. Sure, Nebuchadnezzar was the delivery man for me. He sent the camels. He sent the soldiers to prod you along the road. But in reality, I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And God says, I don't want you to sit there just twiddling your thumbs, waiting to be delivered. I want you to think of your time in Babylon as a mission. I want you to serve me there. And God gives specific instructions, starting in verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. That is the opposite of waiting by the door with your bags packed. Building houses and planting gardens is hard work. It takes investment of time and energy and resources. Historians tell us these exiles in Babylon did have a certain amount of freedom. They couldn't leave Babylon, of course, but they weren't being kept in prison. And actually, they weren't being treated as slaves for the most part. The majority of them probably were not well off. That's why verse 5 talks about gardens instead of fields. This is small-scale stuff. But as far as God's concerned, it's significant small-scale stuff. Each person is to build a house and plant a garden. Those are very clear ways of putting down roots, making a long-term investment in the situation. And on top of that, these people are to build for the future in other ways, through family life. Verse 6, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. There's a significant background to that last command. In the very first chapter of the Bible, the mission that God gave humanity was to increase in number. They were to do that because their mission was to rule God's earth as God's representatives. Now, it wasn't long before sin came into the picture and that mission was derailed. Humanity wanted to rule in God's place, not as his representatives. But God started over with a man called Abraham. And God promised Abraham, I will bless the earth through your descendants. They will fulfill the mission I originally gave to Adam. And here, as God speaks to these exiles in Babylon, these descendants of Abraham, God says to them, I know you are not where you want to be. But I don't want you to while away your time waiting for a way out. I want you to dig in and remember the mission I gave to Abraham. Live as my people there in Babylon. Seek to be a blessing there. And do it in simple, everyday ways. 
Make a good contribution to society. Set a good example in your work and your relationships. Build houses, plant gardens, raise families. And then look how verse 7 prevents this from becoming just an inward-looking effort where I'm only concerned with my house and my garden and my family. Verse 7 says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. There's also a background to what God says in this verse. Because it was very common for Israelites to talk about seeking the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. But here God says, I want you to have the same concern for Babylon. That is remarkable. Because politically, Babylon is their enemy. And religiously, Babylon has no sympathy for their God. These people in Babylon don't worship the Lord. But God says to the exiles, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. The Hebrew word behind those two English words is the word shalom. And that word means much more than just not having any war going on. Shalom means a comprehensive peace. The kind of peace that's shown in healthy community life. This is about well-being and wholeness. And that's why the NIV has used two English words to try and get the full meaning of shalom. God is asking these people who are in the land of their enemies to work for the prosperity of that land. And not just its economic prosperity, although that's certainly included, He wants them to work for the all-round prosperity of Babylon. And that's why God adds the command to pray to him for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. That rules out any idea these exiles might have had that they would just go along with Babylon's immorality. God is not saying just jump in and do whatever they do. These exiles are not being called to fit in at all costs in Babylon. Working for true prosperity there will often mean showing the Babylonians a better way to live, following God's wisdom instead of human wisdom, praying for God to open their neighbor's eyes to his wisdom, because that is how true peace and prosperity come. Eugene Peterson sums up the command really well when he says, throw yourselves into the place in which you find yourselves, but not on its terms, on God's terms. Daniel is a perfect example of that. Remember, he is among these exiles. And he rose to the very highest levels of the Babylonian government. Daniel did plenty for the peace and prosperity of Babylon. But he wouldn't bow to Babylon's gods. Neither would he bow to Babylon's king. 
And so the point of these opening verses is this. Wherever God has put you, work and pray for good in that situation. And we can say wherever God has put you because the application of this is not limited to the Judean exiles in 597 BC. The New Testament refers to Christians as exiles in this world. In fact, the New Testament uses the name Babylon to describe this world order and all of its opposition to God and God's people. So the Bible doesn't have a rose-tinted view of this world. The Bible knows society can be very ugly in its defiance of God. But the Bible does not call us to shut ourselves off from the world around us. So we can try to go through life engaging with society as little as humanly possible. Because we're just waiting for Jesus to come back and this world is rotten and what difference can Christians make anyway? We are not called to have that view of things. Nor are we just to blend in with society, going along with whatever ideas and practices we see around us. God causes people to take a different approach, a third way to work and to build, to get involved. Wherever God has placed us, in our company, in our school, our college, our family. We're to genuinely work hard for the peace and prosperity of that place and that situation. We're to put practical and creative energy into helping things go well. And we're also to pray for that place and situation. Because actually we want more than godless peace and prosperity. We want the kind of peace and prosperity that come when God is honored because his son Jesus is worshipped as Savior and Lord. And if you and I pray sincerely for that, it will help us avoid just being people who blend in. It will help us avoid acting as godlessly as the people around us do. So just think about this. Do you pray for your teachers if you're still at school? Do you try to be a model student to make the school better instead of just grumbling about how bad it is? Do you pray for your co-workers? Do you know them well enough to pray for them? What about our neighbors? Do we pray for them? Do we work as we can for the peace and prosperity of our street? That's our calling. And the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 says the same thing as Jeremiah 29. It says, as foreigners and exiles, you Christians, live good lives doing good. And live those kind of lives with the aim that people around you will come to glorify God. 
Here in Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to come back a little bit later to verses 8 and 9 because they're picked up in the third section of the passage. But the second section calls us to seek the God who will work all things for his people's good. This is building on the command to pray in verse 7. But what's being addressed here in verses 10 to 14 is the main worry the exiles must have had. The worry that God had dumped them in this foreign place and just forgotten about them. After all, Jeremiah had been telling them for years the exile was God's judgment on them. So it certainly hadn't come about because God was happy with Judah. And now here they are, far away from God's temple in Jerusalem. So was God even interested anymore? Well, he is speaking to those fears and concerns when God says in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is one of the strongest statements in the book so far that God has plans for his people beyond the devastating judgment that was brought by the Babylonians. The 70 years of verse 10 fits the length of the Babylonian Empire from 609 BC to 539 BC. So it is literally accurate, but biblically, 70 years is also the expected lifespan of an individual. Psalm 90 says, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. So with this mention of 70 years, God is saying most of these people are going to be in exile their whole lives. But God is also setting a time limit on the exile. It's not an indefinite thing. So the mention of 70 years is both a call for long-term commitment and it's a sign of hope. This situation won't go on forever. And what that means is God's promise in verse 11 is a promise to his people as a whole. The you in verse 11 is plural. When God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, that is not a promise that in the short term, every individual exile is going to have a grand time in Babylon. Nor is it a promise that every individual is going to be delivered from exile in their lifetime. Verse 11 is a promise that God's people have a great future ahead of them. In the end, God will prosper them. 
That's the same word we heard back in verse 7, where the exiles were told to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. But whatever prosperity God might bless godless society with, he has much greater prosperity in mind for his people. He's not talking in verse 11 about short-term stuff like good interest rates and low taxes. In the future, God will give his people ultimate, unending prosperity. So as you and I apply this great promise to ourselves, we must not misapply it. This is not a promise God will turn all of your lemons into lemonade. In other words, he won't turn every bitter circumstance in your life into a sweet one. Bitter things might last a lifetime. These folk had to wait 70 years for what God promised. God may sort some of your problems out next week, but he has not promised to do that. What he has promised to do is give you wonderful prosperity in the end. That's what's being guaranteed here. This is hope for the long-term future. So by all means, put the promise of verse 11 up in your fridge. Frame it and put it on your wall. Lots of people do that. But don't take it as a promise that your exams will always go well. Don't take it as a promise that your job will always be lovely and fulfilling and fair. Don't take it as a promise that your family will always run just like clockwork. God will work all things for good for his people, but it will be on his time scale, not mine or yours. And notice how verse 12 explains who this promise is for. The word then at the beginning of verse 12 might lead us to think God is saying, I'll bring you all back from exile and then you'll seek me. But look again at the order of things. In verse 12, you will call on me and pray to me. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me. Then at the end of verse 14, I will bring you back from captivity. In other words, God's promise of a great future is for those who seek him now with all their heart. The seeking comes before the great future, not after it. And that makes sense if we remember who these exiles are. They're transplants from a nation that has turned its back on God for generations. These people are in exile because of sin. Judah's sin and their own part in that sin. So, of course, there can be no hope and future for these people unless there's repentance first. This future is conditional on their repentance. That's the same today. There's no point having verse 11 on a nice plaque on your wall unless we first called on God for forgiveness. The promise is not for us until we've done that. 
But verses 12 and 13 are not just about an initial turning to God. They're about the daily attitude we're to have as we wait for this good promise to come true. As we seek to do good in our situation, even if it feels like a rotten situation that gets worse instead of better. The only attitude that will keep you and me going is an attitude of daily trust in God. Trusting Him, speaking to Him about our concerns, and seeking to know Him better. Seeking Him with all our heart. And the beautiful thing is, this is not a severe command. This is a wonderful invitation to us. We're being assured by God in these verses, in our daily troubles, He is accessible. He's available. He's listening. Look again at verse 12. You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. God will fulfill his promise of blessing in his time. And that may not be for a long time. For these exiles, it will be 70 years before they'll go back to Jerusalem. God hasn't given us a date when we will walk through the gates of his new Jerusalem. That holy city pictured in the book of Revelation. The place that will literally be heaven on earth. That's where God is going to bring us. And that city will be infinitely better than the old Jerusalem. But we may have to wait a long time for it. And in the meantime, you and I have the privilege and we have the calling to seek the Lord who is going to deliver that future to us. In our efforts to live as faithful exiles in this world, let's keep seeking him with all our heart. Because he's ready and waiting to be found by us. Every day. He's ready and waiting to welcome us closer in. Our circumstances don't hinder us from doing that. God does not say, I will be found by you in these particular happy situations, but not these difficult ones. No, he just says, seek me and you'll find me. Hide and seek is a funny game to try and play with very little children. Because often they're so excited and so desperate to be found that they can't bear to stay hidden. You might have had that experience. And with no intention at all of being flippant here, isn't God telling us in these verses that he is a little bit like that himself? Seek me and I will be found by you. I won't make it hard for you. So if you're a struggling Christian, or if you're a skeptical non-Christian, what are you waiting for? Call to God with an open heart, a heart that truly wants to know him, and you will find him. Wherever God has put you, work and pray for good in that situation. 
Seek the God who will work all things for his people's good. And finally, don't be distracted by promises of a quick fix. That was a big danger for these exiles in Babylon. We know the prophets back in Jerusalem were saying it would all be over in less than two years. We know some of the prophets who had gone with the exiles were saying the same thing in Babylon. And so God anticipates the exiles will be swayed by that message of a quick fix. So he says in verse 15, you may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Look, Jeremiah, it's really nice of you to write to us. We appreciate it. But we have our own prophets who are here with us. And they're telling us, keep your bags packed. Don't get too involved. Before you know it, you'll be back in Jerusalem. And that message seems right. Because why would God let things go on like this? Remember, what's in Jerusalem? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Surely, God wouldn't let that temple fall. Jeremiah? So it seems best for us just to huddle up and wait for the announcement that we can go home. And then, back in Jerusalem, there we can seek God, we can serve Him, and there we can seek the peace and prosperity of the city. God anticipates that kind of response from the people, and through Jeremiah, he says in verse 16, this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, that's Jerusalem, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. In other words, the worst is still to come for Jerusalem. It's not going to be spared. It's going to be crushed like a bunch of rotten figs under somebody's boot. And in the final verses of this passage, God names two false prophets who've been preaching a quick fix for the exiles. Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who's not to be confused with Zedekiah the king. God says, those two men in particular are prophesying lies in my name. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to execute them because they're stirring up trouble. That's what's going to become of those two men and their message. These exiles in Babylon need to unpack their cases, roll up their sleeves, and get stuck into seeking God and living for God where he has placed them. It's not where they want to be, but it's where they are. And they are there for a reason. When things in our lives are difficult, it's very tempting for us to neglect our responsibilities and just wait for God to send a miraculous solution to our problems. So then we can get on with life and get involved in living for God. But God calls each of us to look around us and get involved in things now. 
He has put us where we are. And he has purposes for us where we are. Now that doesn't mean there's never a time to change your bad circumstances if you can. But the essence of being in exile is that we are where we don't want to be. And until Jesus comes back, we are not going to be where we truly want to be. Life is always going to have its frustrations and its limitations. Changing our circumstances might change the frustrations, but it will never lead to a frustration-free life. Living for God will always involve living for Him in circumstances that are not ideal. So let's not waste the opportunities he gives us because we're sitting around dreaming of some ideal situation. We can all fall into doing that. Let's remember, until the new Jerusalem, there is no ideal situation. And probably, until the new Jerusalem, there are going to be people who claim to speak for God and who will promise us if you just trust in Jesus, trust in him hard enough, the difficulties you're facing will magically melt away from your life. There will probably always be people who say that. But that has never been what the Bible says. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're wise if we ignore promises of a quick fix and simply trust God to put things right in the end. In the meantime, God has given us the privilege of representing him here and now in all of our less than perfect situations. He calls us to do what good we can here and now. Most of the time, for most of us, that will simply mean being diligent and faithful and loving in our work and in our relationships. Praying for God to make something of our faithfulness. And he promises, if we seek him, we will find him right here with us. Here and now. So let's praise him for that promise as we sing together, Lord of our dawning.